on in the year, we ask everyone, hey, what do you want to know more about in 2015? So everybody that was here filled out a card, and we still, we obviously, we still have those cards, and we're going to jump back into the next few weeks of learning about those things. So you're going to be, be able to hear what it is that you were asking about. And today, today you're going to have the opportunity to hear from Roy True. Roy is a friend of ours. He's a church, uh, goes to church here. And Roy is going to speak to you today about heaven and hell. And that was one of the things that was asked about several different times. Like, I want to know more about what about heaven, what about, what about hell. I want to give you a couple of reasons why I think it's good every once in a while to have somebody else stand up here and speak. For one, it keeps me fresh. It gives me the opportunity to take a week off to where I can get prepared so that I'm really excited and hungry to get back the following week. So I think it's good for me. It's also good for Roy because it gives Roy a chance to get in the game. If you, have, if you have a hunger and a desire to, to share your gift or whatever, you've got to look for ways to do that. That's the reason why we have opportunities for people to serve. And so I want to encourage you to be, to be checking out those sign-up sheets outside. And then also, it allows you to hear a different voice and a different perspective. And so I think it's good for all of us. So I want to just pray for Roy. Roy, come on out. As he's walking out, let's just pray. Father, I come to you right now in the name of Jesus. I lift up my friend to you, Roy. I thank you for his partnership in the gospel. I thank you that he loves you and he loves your word. God, I pray right now that you would speak through him. Speak to him, God, as he's speaking. Speak through him and that we would open our ears and our hearts to receive what he has to say. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. All right, I want to ask you a question. This could be the most important question you've ever been asked. Where will you spend eternity? The Bible makes it clear that there are two places everyone is going to spend, everyone will spend eternity. You will spend eternity in one of these two places, heaven or hell. So I want to think today, we want to talk a little bit about heaven and hell. But the point of this is for you to be able to answer the question, where will you spend eternity? Turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 16. Luke 16. We're going to look at a a story that Jesus told about two men. One of them has a name, Lazarus. The other one is just known as a rich man. We're going to look at this story and we're going to see what it has to tell us about heaven and hell. So Luke chapter 16, let's start reading in verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades, or hell, where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. 
And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, that's the rich man, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. So what we have in this story is a lot of contrasts. We have two different men, and Jesus is telling this story. And the two different men are completely different. Everything about them is different. And we're going to look at the, the contrast between them, first of all in life and then in death. So let's look at the difference between, differences between them in life. In uh, verse 19 and 21, uh, Jesus talks about the rich man. And he says, There was a certain rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. Now to help us understand the differences, okay, when we read that, that's like, okay, there was a rich guy and he wore purple clothes. You got to remember, they didn't have Walmart then. You couldn't go buy purple clothes at Walmart or wherever. Um, so, if we understand the context or the, the historical setting a little bit, it will help us to understand this better. Uh, in that t- day, uh, people had, they wore, you know, robes or tunics, which is basically like a long t shirt. Um, only it wasn't a t-shirt, obviously. So the inner garment would be made out of linen or cotton. It would be soft against their body. The outer garment would be made of wool. So it says that this man wore purple and fine linen. Purple, you might have heard throughout your life, purple is the color of royalty, right? And why is that? Because in this day and age, it costs a lot of money to have purple clothing. The, the outer garment, which was made of wool, uh, most people had their garment was just like kind of off-white or white. But the rich people would have their garment fold. And I try to look that word up in the dictionary. It's not even in the dictionary uh, because we don't, no one does it anymore. But it was a process where they would take the wool and the fuller would work with the wool by hand and... Uh, work with it. It was a long, tedious process, but it would get it really, really white. So if you had like really white robe, a really white outer garment, that showed that you were a wealthy person. But beyond that, this rich man, first of all, he had to have that process done. Then he had it dyed purple. And there was only one place you could get purple dye. It was very expensive. Again, it was a tedious process to make the dye. It was made out of uh, mollusks or some kind of sea creature. So only the very, very rich people could afford purple garments, like kings. That's why they say purple is the color of royalty. Not that everyone who wore purple was royalty, but they were rich. 
So that's the idea. He had purple, a purple garment. It's like really expensive. And then it says fine linen. The fine linen would be the undergarment, which would be like Egyptian cotton. So if you know anything about sheets, you know, if you've ever gone and tried to buy Egyptian cotton sheets, you know, it's got the really high thread count. That's what we're talking about, really soft. And again, expensive. So the idea is he had clothes that most people could never afford. He was very rich. And then it says that uh, he lived in luxury every day. And the idea, the word, the Greek word that is translated lived in luxury has the idea of like um, ostentatious or flamboyant. I'm showing off my luxury. Look how I live. Um, Now, he didn't just have good meals. He had like the best meals. So, and it says every day, which gives the idea that it was continuous. He didn't just wear his fancy clothes uh, on Saturday to go to synagogue or for the parties. He had a big party going at his house every day. And he was dressed in like the most expensive clothing available every day. So again, we're seeing this is like, you know, the richest of the rich type guy. And he showed his wealth off. And so I'm sure he had a lot of friends at his house. You know, when you got money, you got friends like the prodigal son. He had a lot of friends till his money ran out, right? So this guy had a lot of friends, a lot of people at his house. Every day was like a big party. And then the next verse talks about what was going on outside his house. At, at his gate, and this gate would be like, there would be a courtyard in front of his house. Don't think of an estate where the gate is down at the end of the driveway a mile away. This is like a courtyard in front of his house, and there would be a gate there. So every time the rich man came and left his house or came home, he would walk past this gate. And at his gate, there was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. And even the dogs came and licked his sores. So the rich man is like as rich as you can get. The beggar is as poor as you can get. He's a beggar. And the Greek word it means is tokos. And it means someone who has absolutely nothing. So it's not like a, he had a little bit, but he didn't have enough to live off of, so he was begging. He had absolutely nothing. He was completely destitute. All he had, I'm sure, was a clothes on his back. And it says he was laid at the gate. Someone dropped him off there. He apparently didn't have any family or friends, no one to take care of him. So someone dumps him off at this rich man's house at the gate, and he's just laying there. Obviously, he's disabled. He can't even move. He's just laying out there in front of the rich man's house. And he's covered with sores. So we know that he was in very poor health. Covered in sores. And he was starving. It says he longed to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Now another interesting thing is uh, at these big banquets, uh, of course they didn't have paper napkins, right? Or the little wipey things you get like when you eat barbecue. Um, So how did they clean their hands? They didn't want to, like I would do, wipe them on my shirt. Um, So what they did, they would take the stale bread, yesterday's bread, and they would have it out there, and that would be like a napkin. 
you've got to remember in this, uh, in this time, they didn't have silverware. So everyone just ate with their hands. So when you eat something and you got, you know, whatever on your hands, then you take the stale bread and you wipe it off uh, it's like a napkin. You wipe your hands off with stale bread and throw it under the table. So that's what was falling from the table. And then dogs would come. They would let the dogs come through. And the dogs were not pets for Jews. Uh, they saw dogs as unclean animals, uh, like scavengers. So, but the dogs would come after the banquet and eat the, the napkins off the floor. That was the cleanup. So Lazarus is laying outside at the gate with nothing to eat, and he longed, not just wanted, but he longed to eat what fell from the rich man's table. So he would have been willing, if he could have gotten in there, to eat that dirty bread that the people had used to wipe their hands off because he had nothing to eat. So you see the contrast. you got a guy who's really rich. He has everything. He has friends. He has anything anyone could want. And laying outside his gate is this extremely poor beggar with nothing. No friends, no one to care for him, nothing to eat. And on top of that, the dogs came and licked his sores. And again, to the Jews, dogs were unclean animals. So this would have made the beggar like ceremoniously, ceremonially unclean or religiously unclean. So even if he had some way to get to the temple on the Sabbath day, he wouldn't have been able to go in because he was unclean, because the dog licked his sores. So, two extremes, everything completely different, nothing in common. And then let's look at the contrast between the two in death. In verse 22, it says, there came, uh, the time came when the beggar died, which is no surprise, right? He's laying out there in very poor health, no one to care for him, miserable conditions. That's kind of what you would expect. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him into Abraham's bosom, or Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades, or hell, in hell, where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. Now, Jesus is telling the story, if you look at the context two Pharisees, a group of religious people. This new development would have been shocking to them. Okay, we know the story, so we know what's coming. But to them, it would have been a shock because in their society, now this, uh, this rich man was a religious man. And you have to remember in Israel... It was a religious society. Everyone was a Jew, uh, for the most part. And so they all worshipped the same God. They all lived under the religious laws. And they had the idea that if you were rich, that showed that you were good. God is blessing you. God is happy with you. God is blessing you with wealth. And if you were poor like Lazarus, destitute and sick, that was a sign that God had cursed you. So as they're hearing this story, what they think is, yeah, Lazarus was cursed by God. That's why he's living like this. And the rich man was blessed by God. That's why he's living like that. So what they would expect is Lazarus died and went to hell, and the rich man died 
and went to Abraham's side. But that's exactly the opposite of what happened. Lazarus, who in this life, in fact, when it says Lazarus died, it doesn't even say he was buried. Uh, it, he, his body might have just been taken out and thrown on the trash heap. But the angels carried him to Abraham's side. And the rich man died and in hell lifted up his eyes. So we, again, we see the contrast. In life, the beggar has nothing, but in God, or in death, God lavishes his care and his comfort on him. The angels come and get him, and they take him to Abraham's side. And Abraham's side is, Abraham is the father of the Jews. He's the father of our faith. And the, the Bible says he was a friend of God. So uh, they, would pick, they would see this as heaven and a banquet going on in heaven. So the guy who died and had, the guy, the guy who was a beggar and had no food, absolutely none, is taken by the angels to a banquet in heaven. And the guy who died, or the guy who was rich and had everything died and didn't even have a drop of water. So we see the contrast. And it would have been shocking to the people. So I want to ask you, I want to think about what lessons can we learn from this passage about hell, first of all. Let's talk about hell, and then we're going to talk about heaven. The first thing we can see is that everyone will go to heaven or hell immediately when you die. Hebrews 9.27 says, it's appointed to people once to die, and then the judgment. There's no intermediate state. As soon as you die, you're either in heaven or hell. And once you're there, you're there forever. If you look down at verse 26, it says there's a great chasm fixed between us. So no one can come from here to there, or no one can go from there to here. Uh, you're there forever. If you're in hell, you're in hell forever. If you're in heaven, you're in heaven forever. And the third thing that this passage teaches is that hell is a place of eternal punishment. Uh, the word torment is used twice, verse 23 and 28, talks about the torment. The word agony is used twice, in verse 24 and 25, it says the rich man was in agony, and the word fire is used. So we see that hell is a place of eternal punishment and torment. And the punishment is depicted in terms of separation from God. So you see the rich man, when he looks up in verse 23, he sees Lazarus by Abraham's side far off. He's not even close. It's far off. And there's a great chasm between him so that he can't get there. And there are other places in the Bible where the Bible talks about heaven being a place of separation. Um, Jesus, at least three times, talked about uh, people in hell being cast out into the darkness or into outer darkness. And in Matthew 25, the parable of the talents, remember the story where uh, the, there was a rich man and he went away and he gave his servants some talents. And talent does not mean like they were good singers. I'm giving you five talents so you can sing and dance Talent was a form of money. It's a name for money. 
So he gave, uh, I don't know if they were coins or bars or what, but he gave one guy five coins. It's a lot of money, by the way, thousands of dollars. He gives him five coins, he gives another guy two coins, and he gives another guy one coin. He comes back and he says to the first guy, what did you do with your talents? And he said, well, I, I earned five more. So he tells the guy, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. The guy who had two earned two more. Jesus says the same thing. The, the man who had one, he said, well, and I was kind of afraid, so I didn't do anything with it. And he did not bear any fruit with what he was given from the master. And Jesus said, you wicked, Jesus is telling a story. The man in the story says, you wicked, lazy servant. Take the one talent from him and give it to the guy who has ten and cast him into the outer darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus, in fact, Jesus talks more about hell in the Bible than any other person. He calls it a place of outer darkness, which again signifies separation. You're separated from God's goodness, from all of his blessing. You're separated from other people. Jude and Peter both call it blackest darkness. So when I think of that, I think of a cave. Have you ever been in a cave where all the lights are off and you can't even see your hand in front of your face? Blackest darkness, there's absolutely no light. And you won't be able to see anyone. You won't have communion with anyone. You'll be completely separated and by yourself if you're in hell. So the darkness symbolizes rejection by God, exclusion from all of his goodness and blessings, isolation, and loneliness. Hell will be a lonely, lonely place. You know, you hear people say sometimes, uh, I'd rather go to hell and be with my friends than go to heaven. Well, you won't be with your friends if you go to hell. You'll be lonely. You'll be isolated. And then the Bible talks about hell as a place of fire. Um, in the story, it says he was in agony, and the rich man was in agony in the fire. And several places, Jesus, other places, Jesus talks about hell being a place of fire. In uh, Matthew 13, he tells two parables, one about fish that are caught in a net, and he says that's the way it'll be at the end of the age. The, angel, the guy catches a fish, and he throws the bad ones out and keeps the good ones. The angels will separate all the righteous from the unrighteous, and the unrighteous will be thrown into the fiery furnace. And then he says the same thing down a few verses later. He tells a parable of the weeds. The farmer had weeds growing in his field, and he said, let them grow together till the harvest time. And then the workers went by and picked out bad weeds and threw them into the fiery furnace. And Jesus said, that's the way it'll be at the end of the age. The unrighteous will be thrown into the fiery furnace. He also described it as unquenchable fire. In, in Mark chapter 9, Jesus said, if your hand causes you sin, cut it off. It's better to enter into life maimed than to have both hands and enter into hell where the fire never goes out. And then later he talks about plucking out your eye if it causes you to sin because that's better than to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So hell is a place of eternal, unquenchable fire. Jude talks about it the punishment of eternal fire. And the fire, of course, uh, symbolizes terrible pain. Terrible pain for eternity. Physical pain, but also emotional pain. 
And then there are seven times in the New Testament, seven separate incidents where Jesus talks about hell being a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that word weeping is not like a soft crying. It means like loud wailing. Uh, It's just hopeless, loud wailing from the pain and the isolation. And gnashing of teeth means like grinding your teeth, which is also a sign of incredible pain and despair. So we see heaven is a place of fire. It's a place of separation. It's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. The picture is that it's a place of eternal sorrow, misery, deep, deep despair, and hopelessness. There's no hope. Once a person is in hell, there's no hope. There's no way out. There's nothing good ever for them again. Nothing ever. It's all bad. It's all pain and misery and despair and loneliness and boredom forever. And if that's where the Bible stopped, that would be really depressing. And I probably would not have even gotten out of bed this morning. But thank God there's a heaven. So let's look at what heaven's going to be like. And we have a couple of clues here. It talks about being at Abraham's side, which is a picture of a big banquet. And it says that Lazarus is comforted. So we know it's a place of comfort, and we know it's a place of plenty. And just to help us understand about heaven, um, I want to turn to Revelation chapter 21. Turn with me there if you have your Bible. Revelation chapter 21. I want you to understand that when you die... You know, your body is buried or decays or whatever happens to your body. Your spirit goes immediately to heaven or hell. But someday, there's going to be a resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, the whole chapter really, but starting with verse 51 and on, talks about the resurrection. And Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, which means die, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. So I want you to understand that at some point in time, our bodies will be raised, and even unsaved people, their bodies will be raised, and they will enter into hell eternally in a physical body. But if you're a believer, you will enter into heaven eternally in a physical body. You're not going to be an angel with a harp floating around on a cloud. All right, we're going to be physical people doing physical things in our physical bodies. All right, Revelation 21. Uh, this is John describing his vision. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and will be their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying 
or pain. So, hell, we saw, is a place of torment and rejection. Heaven is a place of acceptance and inclusion. We will have all of God's blessings. Just like in hell, there was none of God's blessing. In heaven, there was all of God's blessing. Um, and verse 4 here that we just read says, God will be with them. And in chapter 22, verse 4 says, we will see his face. What does it, what does it mean to see God's face? Uh, in the Old Testament, anytime you see uh, people talking about making God's face shine upon them, um, there's a benediction, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. That's talking about God's blessing. So it's a way of saying, I hope God looks at you and gives you all of his blessings. But remember when Moses wanted to see God's glory in Exodus 33, he said to God, show me your glory. And God said, okay, I'm going to put you in this rock on a mountain. I'm going to put you in a little hollowed out place. I'm going to cover you with my hand and I'm going to walk by and then you can look at my back. Because you can't see my whole glory. And it said, God said, no one can see God's face and live. All right, because we're sinful and God's glory is too much for us. But in heaven, we're going to see God's face. We're going to see his full glory. And we're going to be right there with him every day. We're going to live right next to him. Um, so heaven is a place of acceptance, acceptance by God and inclusion with him and in all of his, all of his benefits. Uh, hell is a place of torment and sorrow. Heaven is a place of comfort. You see in the story of Lazarus, it says he was comforted in Revelation 21.4, it says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death. No more death. Can you imagine that? No more dying loved ones. No more us worrying about death. No more death. No more mourning. No more crying. No more pain. So I know there are people in this room who in your life have endured a lot of pain. Maybe physical pain, maybe psychological pain. Pain, suffering, crying, it's part of this world. But in heaven, no more. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more death, no more crying. For the old order of things has passed away, and everything will be new. So heaven is a place of comfort. There will be no more sadness there. We'll be happy all the time. We'll be blessed all the time with blessings that we can't even imagine now. There will be no sin there. Chapter, look at chapter 21, Revelation 21, verse 27. Nothing impure will ever enter it. Nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then in chapter 22, verse 3, it says, no longer will there be any curse. So there's no more sin there. Do you have a sin that you struggle with? There won't be any struggle in heaven. You'll be done with that. Do people ever sin against you? 
Have you ever been offended? Have you ever been mistreated? When you get to heaven, that's over. No more sin, nothing bad. No sin in heaven. No more struggle with sin. No more stumbling and falling into sin. Nothing impure will be there. Uh, Heaven is a place of joyful service. Look at chapter 22, verse 3. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. So, a lot of times I think we think of heaven as a boring place because we don't understand. We, get, we do have that picture of like sitting on a cloud strumming a harp. And if you like harps, I think you can play a harp in heaven. Um, but I'm not personally interested in harps, so that doesn't really appeal to me. But we, it says we will serve him. So what is that service? Part of it is worship. We'll worship him. I think we will sing. And if you don't like to sing, I think you will in heaven. Uh, We'll sing, we'll worship, we'll have a big worship service, but that's not all we're going to do. We will have other meaningful work to do that God gives us. If you consider the Garden of Eden, Eden, Adam and Eve uh, worked in the Garden of Eden before there was sin. God gave them work to do, work that they could enjoy. So in heaven, we will have things to do that we enjoy, and we will spend our time doing those things, and we will enjoy it, and that will be our ser- part of our service to God. If you look in the Bible, you see that service is not a punishment. Service is spoken of as a reward. Serving God in heaven is a reward. So it's not going to be boring. There will be no boredom in heaven. I promise you, you will not be bored in heaven. Uh, we'll have meaningful service to do. And then the last, or not the last thing, I got two more things. Verse five, it's a place of light. Heaven, complete darkness. Uh, heaven, complete light. Hell, complete darkness. There's no, de- there's no night in heaven. The glory of God will light the place. And then in Revelation 22, five, it says, we will reign There will be no more night. Uh, They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of a sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. That they is us. We will reign forever and ever. We're going to rule. And again, if you look at uh, the Garden of Eden, when God created man in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, he said, let us make man and woman in our own image. Let's make them in our own image And let them rule over the earth and over the creatures. So that's part of God's image is ruling. Now, what are we going to rule in heaven? I'm not really sure. Uh, If you look at the parable in Luke chapter 19 about the, it's similar to the parable of the talents, but it's minus, which is a different form of money. Uh, the, The master tells the guy, the first guy, you've been faithful in little, so I'm going to give you 10 cities to rule. And the second guy says, I'm going to give you five cities to rule. So we may rule cities. We may rule animals. We may rule, like, we have our own kingdom. I don't know for sure. But we are going to reign with Christ. Christ, Jesus, will be the king of kings. And we will be like his under rulers.
So heaven will be a place of joy, comfort, inclusion, meaningful service, and reigning. Now that I want to get back to the first question I ask you. Where are you going to spend eternity? Will it be heaven or hell? And can you really even know? Uh, I read a, a survey online this week that Barna did. It said less, in the United States, less than one half of 1% of people think there's any chance they will go to hell. So people just assume, people who believe in heaven just assume they will go there. How can you know for sure you're going to heaven? Let me quote a verse to you that you probably already know. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, that doesn't mean just I believe about Jesus, I believe in him, I put my trust in him, will not perish, which means eternity in hell, but have everlasting life. So we're saved by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. And if you do that, you can know. Uh, John said that the reason he wrote his gospel is so that we can know that we have eternal life by trusting in Jesus. So I, I just want you to think about that today, right now. Do you know for sure you're going to heaven? Bow your heads, please. Ask yourself right now, where am I going? Am I going to heaven? And if you think you're going to heaven, how do you know that? Are you sure or are you just wishfully hoping? Again, you can know you're going to heaven by putting your faith in Christ. And if you've never done that, I want to invite you to do it today. Uh, we're going to pray, and the worship team is going to sing a song. And then I'll be down front. Pastor Brady will be down front here. If you'd like to talk, to come and talk to someone and make sure that you're going to heaven, I want to invite you to come and do that today. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. If you're not sure, don't put it off. Make sure today. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Your word tells us how we can get to heaven, and it tells us of the glories that await us and the joy that awaits us in heaven. And I thank you that you loved us enough to warn us about the terrors of hell so that we wouldn't go there. I pray that if there's anyone here who's not saved, that today they would be sure that they would trust you and receive assurance that they're going to heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.